Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Good evening, listeners. With fall in full swing and the sun setting much earlier than we've been used to, it can only mean one thing. It's almost Halloween. And seeing as the world is collectively getting a little bit creepier, I thought I'd try and do the same. When considering a topic that would best cling to this season, I first thought of the obvious, a discussion on Canada's many haunted locations. I'm not going to do that tonight, but I will do it soon, in the next episode in fact. But first, I wanted to focus on another location that adds a spooky element to every community across Canada, the cemetery. Personally, I've always found cemeteries a calming and peaceful place. But I know not everyone is comfortable roaming their twisted paths, and especially so under moonlight. If that describes you, well, you may find this episode a little bit uncomfortable at first, as roaming around a graveyard is exactly what we're going to do. But don't get scared off just yet. I suspect that this walk amongst the dead may change the way you view the boneyard. I've called upon Craig Ferguson to take the lead. He's a local man who spends a considerable time walking amongst the dead. He produces a unique web-based project that merges art, journalism, and storytelling that he calls Dead in Halifax. His work is shared primarily on Twitter and Facebook, and it starts with a headstone catching his eye, and it leads him on a fact-finding mission into the life and death of the person buried in the ground below. It's like a modern-day history lesson for goths. So let's get to it. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, I'll be meeting with Craig Ferguson at the gates of the Camp Hill Cemetery in Halifax. And together, we're going to go for a walk amongst the dead in Halifax. So I, I found you from your, I guess, Twitter account, yep. Dead in Halifax. Why don't you describe it before we get into what you do? So Dead in Halifax is sort of a ongoing journalism project where I typically I just start with by coming into a cemetery and finding a stone that interests me, and uh, I try to find it as much as I can about the person and their life in Halifax as I can, and uh, within the constraints of Twitter, try to tell an interesting story about like someone who could have been your neighbor, except you know they're dead. <laughs> How did you like that? It's, it's a weird hobby to just be roaming around graveyards. Like, what started this? So for me, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Like, I used to be a person who was scared of cemeteries, but a little bit of exposure over time changed things. The way I look at it, especially a place like Camp Hill. This is a place where, like, the richest and the poorest are buried. You know, 
uh, there's an Italian proverb that says, like, you know, when the game is over, the king and the pawn all go in the same box. Mm. But it's not quite true. Like, even in the cemetery, there's all the stratifications of class and culture and even race that existed in Halifax in the 19th century. And so it's going to sound ironic, but I just think that the cemetery is a place where history comes alive. Good way to put it. And that's like one of the things I like about your Twitter account is that you do bring it to life. Like you, for, for one, you have your photo, like the various photos of the cool headstones and stuff. But you go a step beyond that, and you're often profiling the, you know, the I, skeletons. I guess it started for me with this kid Johnny Power. I saw his uh, gravestone in Holy Cross Cemetery in the South End, mm-hmm. and it said he was lost in the woods of the Northwest Arm, and he was 14 years old. And a few things occurred to me. First of all, I have a teenage daughter. So that, you know, is something I could relate to. Second of all, he was lost in the woods of the Northwest Arm. So Northwest Arm must have been a really different place back then, right? Than we think of it today. And the third thing was, I'd been a news reporter, and I knew that if a kid was lost in the woods, it doesn't matter when it was, a kid lost in the woods is a huge news story, even in the 1920s. So I thought, man, you must be able to find something with that. And the story would not leave me alone. You know, I kept thinking about it and I took a couple pictures and I went to the archives, which is something I'd never done before. And I found his death certificate and that let me know when they finally did find him. And it had, it was almost a year by the time they found him. And then I found all the newspaper stories Mm -hmm. and it was a story that I could relate to. But the thing that really got to me was when I, um, looked up where he lived because uh, John Edward Power, his family called him Johnny Power, uh, he lived in the house next door to the house I used to live in. Wow. Right? So I was on the corner of Creighton and Cornwallis, and he was uh, right on Creighton Street, right next to the corner. And it occurred to me, like, man, if it wasn't for an accident in history, this kid would be my neighbor. Mm-hmm. This would be someone I know. Yeah. And that's who all these people are. These are, these are your neighbors, right? They're just dead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And with the Johnny Power story specifically, like you stumbled upon the headstone, it caught your eye, you began doing that research. Like I followed your thread because you were sharing a lot of your research um, through a series of posts on Twitter. What was the story? What happened to him? You say he was lost in the woods. Well, it was a hot day in July and it was, you know, the hottest day of the year so far. And if you were well to do, you go to the, I think the Wagwalta club was a thing back then, or you go to any one of the private clubs along the arm, but Johnny Power wasn't. Um, I think his dad was a postman and, uh, you know, he's a poor Irish kid living in North End Halifax and him and his friends walked from uh, Creighton and Cornwallis to about where the dingle is, okay. right? So it's a, it's a good walk, and they were looking for a place to swim, and you can go through the archives and you can find photos of people swimming back at that place back then, and, okay. it, and it does indeed look a lot more wild and forested than the way we imagine those uh, parks and stuff that are around the dingle now. Mm. And, you know, he couldn't swim, so you'd think that... Um, that that oh, this is maybe one of those tragic drowning stories. I used to be a news reporter, and the first hot day in the summer, um, very often some poor kid drowns, and it's very often a poor kid at an unsupervised swimming location. And I've had to report on a few of those myself over the years, and it it, it breaks your heart. It's one of the reasons I related to this story. But Johnny Power couldn't swim. He put his feet in the water. It was too cold, and he said to his friends, "I'm going for a walk." Nobody ever saw him again. Wow. 
there was a massive rainstorm, you know, and you can see a video that I posted on the Twitter on the Twitter thread I made because we had a, a similar uh, thing happen around the time that I posted because I posted near the anniversary of his death, um, where there was just this torrential downpour. You know, the weather here changes really fast. Oh, yeah. um, lots of thunder and lightning, and then um, it was a cold night, and they, you know, five hundred people. Some days we're out looking for him. The chief of police, the mayor, are out searching the woods for this kid Johnny Power. They didn't find him. You know, it was it was months and months later. And to give you an idea of how much wilder things were back then, it was a deer hunter oh, wow. who found them. They figured that he was only about six feet away from some of the locations they had searched. Wow! Um, but if you can imagine, like the thick, you know, uncut forests of Nova Scotia uh, that might have still existed in a, a, on uh, the banks of the Arm back then, uh, it'd be hard to find a kid. You know, mm. it, it was he was pretty much skeletal remains. The cause of death on the um, death certificate said exposure, but I think that's just speculation mm. at that point. But you know, we'll never really know like what happened to that kid. Um, but he he went for that walk. He was never seen again. You know, he was wearing like thick pants and a light shirt, so he had a hard time moving around and wouldn't have been very warm. Yeah. And when you saw his headstone, other than like his age, was there anything about it that stood out? It's that lost in the woods of the Northwest Arm. Yeah. You know, that is. Uh, I you know I work in television. Uh, that's a tease, you know, like there's a story of a kid lost in the woods of the Northwest arm. Like, man, you just know there's more to that story. Yeah. It sounds like something you would put on like the cover of the movie. Yeah. It's a hook, you know, for sure. And I just wanted to know more. And I think that that's what each of these gravestones really are. Right. Is like, um, you could think of them as like a bit of an advertising or a synopsis for somebody's life. You know, we usually know from the gravestone, um, who they were when they were born and when they died. It's filling in those details that excites me and interests me. When I get to see a picture of what the person looked like, when I um, can like uh, do a Google Street View and find out that the house that the person lived in is still there, and I start to have a sense that they're walking the same streets I'm walking, you know, and they're seeing the same things I'm seeing. Halifax is such an old city and there's so many old graveyards like why you brought me here to Camp Hill Cemetery which is in mm-hmm. central Halifax other than other than this what are some of your favorites you only think that Camp Hill's in central Halifax but in the Halifax of 1844 Camp Camp Hill's on the outskirts of town yeah so that's the first thing to remember mm-hmm. when people white people showed up in 1749 they needed a place to put the dead people mm-hmm. so they put them on the edge of town Right, and the edge of town was the corner of Spring Garden and Barrington Street. So okay. that's the old burying ground, formerly St. Paul's mm-hmm. Cemetery. Um, and in addition to that, there's uh, the St. David's, the uh, the old Methodist burying ground. It's called that little tiny cemetery beside the church on Pizza Corner. Yeah, yeah. And then that's not to talk about the like couple thousand people who are buried on that parking lot 
underneath the parking lot by mm-hmm. Taz Records there next to the Catholic Church. That's an old Catholic cemetery and all the people are still under there. Wow. Not and and on top of that, you have the Poorhouse Cemetery, which is um where the old memorial library is so uh that big statue of winston churchill is strolling across uh the remains of like maybe ten thousand people that's our city of the dead there's actually a jewish cemetery that's been lost to history in that same area i love the old burying ground i love the way that it connects um you to uh, a time uh, in halifax's history where uh, before Canada was a country, there's uh, people who fought in the War of 1812. The guy who burned down the White House and inadvertently inspired the lyrics to the Star Spangled Banner, he's buried in the old burying ground. Okay. Uh, he, after being pickled in like 150 gallons of rum, they buried him in there. Um, uh, I, I love the way that that cemetery has been... Um, it's such a part of Halifax's history that uh, when Lucy Maud Montgomery wrote... Anne of the Island, in which Anne Shirley, with the pigtails and all, comes and lives in Halifax for a while. It's called Kingsport in the book. She goes to Old St. James Cemetery um, because it's like the only place where she can find trees. You know, the reminder of the Avonlea Woods. And it's clearly St. Paul's, uh-huh. which is now the old bearing ground. Um, outside, so when, when St. Paul's got full, and I mean, it's full. There's a thousand gravestones in there. There's 10,000 people buried there. So it is more than full. Um, I think that, you know, you read these descriptions at the time that describe it as like not a very pleasant place, like rats and smells and a stream running nearby that was pretty gross. Um, when that place got full, they needed to build a new cemetery in the 1840s. And so this is it. This is the new cemetery on the edge of town. Uh, at the time, there was a change in um, the way that... Uh, we thought about cemeteries. Camp Hill is kind of Halifax's example of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, those are the ones on the peninsula that I have a real fondness yeah. for. Everybody knows about the Titanic graves in Fairview. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the most famous, uh, those are the most famous graves in yeah. Halifax. What is this? Are they marked great? Because like, the Titanic sunk not far from here. Yeah. Are, there, are the, the deceased from that in marked graves? Or is it just... No, they're marked graves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I can tell you all about that. They... They sent out um, ships from Halifax mm. to go recover the bodies. Yeah. And if you go on the archives, you can read the journals written by one of the guys who is on one of the cable ships oh, wow. that went out to bring back the bodies. Um, things were complicated, you know. Um, things were stratified by class. And there was probably more bodies than they were prepared for. Mm. Um, I know that they had to make some uh, ghastly decisions on the ship. Like, they basically, if you're a first-class passenger, I think you got, like, um, a, a pine box, you know, and uh, you were embalmed. I think if you're a second-class passenger, I think you, I don't know if you got embalmed offhand, but you got put in a, a bag, you know. And if you're a third-class passenger, they had a priest on board who said the last rites, and they threw you back over. They buried wow. you at sea. Um, and then they brought those people in and you can see these photographs. The archives has an amazing collection of these. Uh, they brought those people in, they offloaded them into like horse drawn hearses at the waterfront and towed them up to Snow's funeral home, uh, which was, um, is where the five fishermen is. Yeah. It's now, right. There's now a dance bar there. Yeah. Yeah. Or I think it's a, it's still a restaurant, right? It's still I a five so. fishermen yeah. restaurant. They claim it's the most haunted restaurant in in Canada. Well, it's it's funny that you mention that because Five Fishermen is said to be haunted, and it has a history with 
you know, uh, being a funeral home or whatnot. And you've mentioned the old library, which is also supposed to be one of the most haunted places, which sure. is also a burial ground. And and then I think the other place that they, they dealt with a lot of the bodies from the Titanic is uh, there was a curling club on Agricola Street that's okay. gone now. Okay. But they had to lay the bodies out somewhere cool, right? Mm. And it's the most Canadian thing ever. They laid them out at the curling rink. Wow, that's right? a sight. Those are the most famous graves in Halifax. But there's a much smaller section of... Um, in the cemetery next door, there's, uh, which I cannot remember the name of, is the Jewish cemetery. Mm. There is a much smaller section of like um, the passengers and crew of the Titanic who are Jewish or believed to be Jewish, okay. um, because I think there was mistakes made on all on all sides. And then in Mount Olivet, the Roman Catholic cemetery by Halifax Shopping Center, there's a pretty decent section of Titanic graves as well of okay. the Roman Catholic. Uh, passengers. My favorite is the uh, the guy who is the bass player in the band. I joke with my friend who's a bass player that you'd think he would have been able to use that thing as a raft. Yeah. But famously, the band kept playing, right? Okay. Nearer yeah. My God to Thee, they played as the Titanic sunk. Wow. Um, and he's buried in that cemetery. Yeah. With the amount of time you spend in a cemetery and roaming around them and whatnot, I have to ask, have you ever had anything like really creepy happen or has it always been positive? It's always positive. I'm not much of a believer, if that's, you know, makes sense. I, um, it does never feel creepy. That said, like, I don't come in at night, uh, mostly because, uh. Who knows what goes on? Yeah, it's wide open that, in the night. I'm sure there's scarier things than the dead in here at night. That, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> and and I actually was reading some... I've read a few uh, academic papers about the history of the cemetery and other cemeteries. And one of them had some uh, concerns from the city fathers that, you know, from day one, people were meeting up in the cemetery to, like, make out and get drunk. And I know that people are, that people are still doing the the grave of Alexander Keith is right over there, and almost every time I come in, there's beer bottles or uh, bottle caps there. I personally don't have any problem with that. That's a kind of ritual, you know? It's unique to the community. It's unique to this location. And nobody tells you that you should go into Camp Hill and drink some beers at the grave of Alexander Keith, but some one frat boy tells another frat boy you know and the next thing you know I have like a tradition with significance that's particular to a place and while I say I'm not much of a believer in ghosts and things I like to imagine that like in those moments the veil between uh, the world of the living and the world of the dead is just like a little bit thinner yeah and his like just learning about the history of these people in these places like it does that same thing like that's why I say it's like it's ironic, but this is the place where history comes alive because all the stratifications of class and culture and race are still happening here. And you can still see like the relationships between people and places and things like that grave of Alexander Keith. Like, look where it is. It's close to the path. It's a massive granite structure, right? Location, location, location. It's the same in real estate out in the, out in the living world as it is here in the cemetery, yeah. right? Yeah, since I've lived in Halifax, I've known his grave was here, and I've always I saw the same thing. There's always just a, a couple. Yeah, there's empty a beer, beer bottle pumps. over there on this uh, on this uh, <clears throat> the Coffin family's gravestone, but I assume it's probably somebody yeah. <laughs> was drinking with Alexander Keith. Well, it, it's interesting because what you do in a graveyard is is almost like what it was designed for. But I don't think anybody else that I know anyway does what you do. Like the point of this is, of course, it gives the family somewhere to 
mourn their lost loved one. But there's information here that seems not like on a on a on a headstone that's not necessarily for the family. It's more to commemorate their life for anyone who's walking past. So like what you're doing seems to be what a graveyard was meant for. Well, the purposes of graveyards have changed over time. When you go to the old burying ground downtown, you see a lot of these um, skulls mm-hmm. on the gravestones. And that's called, a, a broadly speaking, memento mori. Yeah. It's a reminder that you, you will also die. Mm-hmm. So it's for the person walking past, mm-hmm. right? And then they're functional. You see on those gravestones, which you won't see in here, um, it says, here lies the body of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it literally tells you who's buried there, right? Mm-hmm. And reminds you that someday you'll die too. You often see like there are verses, uh, some pretty common verses about that that are often on the stones too. Then you see in that cemetery, the, um, the skulls change to faces. Like you, you can see like a stone will have like a skull with wings and then uh, there'll be a similar stone that has a person's face with wings. Mm-hmm. And that's meant to be like, uh, they call it a soul effigy, but it's it's a representation of the soul. And if you think about what's going on in the world in the 1780s, there's all these ideas about like the enlightenment and individualism and uh, the idea that now it's more about the person who's buried under there and the idea that uh, their their eternal life and their salvation, you know, and you see less of that in here. The thing you get these kind of sentimental messages in loving memory of, mm-hmm. right? So it's now it's more about mourning and remembering. And I think that um, someday, you know, as cremation becomes more popular, um, cemeteries will be more of a historical site, is what I think. Mm-hmm. Which leads to like the question of like, what do you do with this like multiple acres? site in the middle of a city where there's all these pressures with development and stuff and i think um if this can provide like if by having the people here it preserves it for wildlife and for uh quiet contemplation and for a place that's like away from all the noise of the streets and the helicopters um (laughs) if if that's all the cemeteries do in the future like that's a lovely gift from the dead to the living A bit about class and stuff is that um, here's Alexander Keith, right? He was the mayor. He was the head of the Freemasons. He was a very successful business person. His mark has been made on Halifax. Over here is the young family, and the young family, like they were barristers and politicians, and we named uh, Young Street and Young Avenue after them. And uh, one of them wrote letters to uh, the newspaper advocating for like uh, better agriculture in Nova Scotia and he signed them Agricola and that's where we get the name of the street oh, from. Really? It's from okay. it's from that guy there. So right away we're seeing the city in a little bit of a different way. Mm-hmm. But I, I love that this um, this gravestone is in this section. This is uh, this is William Valentine. Uh, William Valentine was Nova Scotia's first photographer. It was a portrait painter first, and then he, he changed with the technology. And you can go to the Art Gallery of Nova Scotia and see the portraits he painted. And he painted portraits of people like Alexander Keith and Young. And But I don't think he had the same kind of station uh-huh. in life that they did. But he moved in that circle because of, of who he was. And uh, as a result, he's buried. I consider this sort of 
the high rent section of Camp Hill. Okay. There are actual divisions on a map somewhere that tell you like this section was for this church and this Masonic Lodge bought a lar- large section over here and there's a section over there that's marked on the old maps CS. It stands for colored section because Camp Hill was historically segregated by race. We're going to go over there in a little while. Um, but I love that uh, a person here, and like it says, says um, a skillful artist, right? Um, that w- was held in such high regard that he gets a spot here amongst the Youngs and the Keiths yeah. and the Black family. Although his his headstone doesn't hold a light to theirs, whatever that you can hardly read it as I'm looking at it. Yeah, it's it's this kind of like gray 19th century stone that uh, it's you know what it's not holding up too bad in my opinion. Like you can uh, you can make it all the dates. He's born 1798, died in 1849. Um, you you can for me it's like you can read pretty much all of it and it's still standing. And as we're gonna see from the condition of a lot of stones in here, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. I also love like do you see this frog? Look. I don't know what this is about. This is a Camp Hill mystery. But that frog isn't just sitting there. He's a- It's anchored right into the ground. And I don't know if it's for William Valentine, but I figure these things out as I go sometimes. The, I like this style. This uh, I don't know what you would call this, but it's the type of grave where it's um, it almost looks like their coffin is put inside of stone and just laid on the ground instead of a headstone it's called a ledger stone okay and you think of it as like a ledger like you write in okay and it's sitting in front of you and yeah i used to think they were crypts like uh but they're not and we're going to look at some of them i think that this was like really fashionable at a certain point because there's some very uh wealthy people who are buried in these type of things on my list today for you are a few over here so let's a few tablet, uh, ledger stones over here. Over here, these ledger stones. Oh, this is Abraham Gesner. Abraham Gesner was a professor at Dow, and he invented kerosene. Oh, did he? And uh, kerosene is, um, you know, replaced whale oil in lanterns. So I can't be sure, but I like to say that Abraham Gesner saved more whales than any other person who ever lived. And you can see it's really nicely maintained, and that's because the geology department of Dahazi, like, came out here and cleaned it up themselves. Okay. Um, These folks here weren't so lucky. These folks weren't so lucky. And it's interesting because... um, We'll wait for this here. That's the problem with having it next to a hospital, I guess. Oh, yeah. Well, and like, you know, in Juan, uh, a tree fell out of Camp Hill and crushed an ambulance. It's like yeah, the one yeah. people, the, the people who died, yeah. the only people that. And there's a small memorial on the other side of the street there. That. Okay, so these are. this is a Halliburton family. And on the right here is Sir Brenton Halliburton. He was the eighth chief justice of the Supreme Court in Nova Scotia. And he's the guy who presided over Joe Howe's libel trial. So we talk about Joe Howe, Joseph Howe, who's buried over there. We talk about Joseph Howe as like um, an early um, proponent of the free press in in Canada, right? And it's because he fought this libel trial. He was publishing these pamphlets where he was... Um, talking about this sort of concentration of wealth and political power that's sort of represented by people like Hezekiah Co- Henry Hezekiah Cogswell and uh, Enos Collins, who happens to be buried right behind us. 
This man was the richest man in Canada when he died. He was the founder of uh, something that has now grown into being uh, CIBC. Oh. Right? So uh, you had these people who were involved in politics and banking. They basically owned the town because they owned everybody's debt. And they were like the comptrollers and the judges and the members of parliament. And, you know, it was um, Joseph Howe was kind of railing against this and he was publishing these pamphlets, right? Uh, pamphlets and, and newsletter newspapers. Um, so on the right, this is... Uh, the eighth Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in Nova Scotia, who presided over Joseph Howe's libel trial, right, which happened at Province House in the library. You can still go and see the place where it happened. And his son um, is John Crooks Halliburton, and he's in the slab on the left here. See, John yeah, Crooks. I see that. John Crooks Halliburton. Um, so basically, <laughs> trials probably worked a little bit differently, but Halliburton instructed the jury to find Howe guilty, but they returned with the opposite verdict in after just 10 minutes. So they clearly felt like it wasn't liable. But, and some scholars say this is like really critical in establishing freedom of the press in Canada. What happened is John Crooks, the son, John Crooks Halliburton, the son, he believed that Joseph Howe had disrespected his father during the course of the trial. And here's where things get really interesting. He challenged Joseph Howe to a duel with pistols at Point Pleasant Park. And it happened. They went and they drew whatever the rules were, you know, drawing pistols at however many paces. But Halliburton shot first and he missed. Okay. Joseph Howe uh, didn't want to kill him. By every right, I think I think duels were legal then. So I think by every right he could have. He fired his gun into the air, which is a way of like signaling like a fair surrender. Wow. Um, also the ultimate like power move. Real power move. Well, it, it's just nuts because as we stand here, these... Uh, ledger stone type burial plots mm -hmm. do not stand out at all. In fact, his, uh, as prominent as he was, it is as fascinating as his story is, the thing's cracked open. We can see inside it. It's busted wide open. You'd think someone would take some interest in it, and I don't want to... Um, Even push the thing shut. Like, his grave yeah. is kind of open. It wouldn't take much to fix it. Yeah, I think, I think like, again, this isn't his actual grave, right? So mm -hmm. we can see really clearly here. The, it's just a stone on top, and these supports. It creates this kind of look of the crypt but it's not um it's just a place of a headstone yeah he's he's buried underneath it when i came in looking for um when i came in looking for enos collins grave i was looking for something that looked like alexander keith's mm -hmm. grave mm -hmm. i was looking for something that would look to modern eyes like what uh the richest he was the richest man in canada like what that would look like so what does it say here he was Oh, mer for many years, a merchant of the city. That's a very common thing. And former something of the Executive Legislative Council of Nova Scotia. This is this concentration of wealth and power that we were talking about, where in the in the early days of Halifax, like it, the rich people didn't just like own everything. They ran everything, too. And you think of like Halifax having different levels of government, municipal, provincial, wasn't quite like that in the colonial days, right? Um, this is the stuff that Joseph Howe was so upset about yeah. and here and and yet now all the principles like you know two guys who were ready to kill each other in a duel with pistols in Point Pleasant Park you know 100 plus years later are both buried on opposite sides of the path in Camp Hill Cemetery <laughs> Thank you.
interesting. It's kind of funny because this is, we're very close to the path, but these are some that I've never really taken notice of before. And there's a really big fly on that grave that's just out of place. <laughs> <laughs> So here's the Viola Desmond's grave, and I, I just, I would hope that most of your listeners know this story by now, right? Viola Desmond was uh, a black woman and a successful business person, and she uh, went to the Rosedale Cinema in New Glasgow, and she wanted to sit downstairs because she was nearsighted. The downstairs was reserved for white people, and uh, black patrons were forced to sit upstairs she was sold an upstairs ticket despite asking for a downstairs ticket she uh, went and sat downstairs she was physically removed she was charged with avoiding the uh, one cent difference in the tax um, between the price of the upstairs and downstairs and you know she's on the ten dollar bill we've named a I think we've named a ferry after her and uh, now she's seen as like you know um, sort of the Rosa Parks of, of Canada, but I, this is one of the few gravestones that you see in Camp Hill where people leave. You know, we have marbles and chestnuts. You often see people have left coins uh, on the grave, but it means a lot to people. And this, the city doesn't have obviously a lot of money for wayfaring signage. All right, I would hope they would put more, but they, they have these two wayfaring signs to get you to her gravestone, and it's one of the most visited graves in Camp Hill still to this day. And, and, you know, not particularly remarkable, you know? And I think it shows that, like, after, even after someone's death, they can become um, something bigger than they were in life, you know? Uh, my, I don't know, I didn't grow up in Nova Scotia, but my kids are, and they all learn Viola Desmond's story now in school, right? It's, it's mandatory material, and I, I think that, like, um, as important as she was in life, she'll be equally or more important in death. And, you know, people feel compelled to come here. Unfortunately, the, these wayfaring signs were also subjected to vandalism recently. So it shows we're still contending with some of these same problems all these years later. Well, I, I'm surprised it's so small. Uh, the one I'm looking for is right here. I have notes. I have a little story, too. So, uh, I cut through here all the time. I passed through the cemetery. I lived just on the other side. And I went downtown for the Black Lives Matter march. Remember, we had the, uh, we were all socially distanced. Yeah, yeah. But letting people know that we weren't happy about that. And I walked through, and um, I walked through Camp Hill that evening on my way home. And I spotted the grave of uh, Daniel Perry Sampson. And the first thing I noticed about it is um, that he was part of the 2nd Construction Battalion of the Canadian Expeditionary Force. His gravestone is a, um, this is a soldier's grave. You see the ones that are this shape and this material with a religious marker. It, it, it says it's unit and stuff, but you can spot these pretty far away. Um, there's organizations that make sure that no soldier's grave goes unmarked. Um, so what I knew because I've done other stories with the 2nd Construction Battalion, is it that that's the only all-black unit in the Canadian military uh, in the First World War. They were in France. They were mostly involved in, uh, you know, there was, they were close to the combat, and there was probably, uh, but they were a construction battalion, so they were charged with, like, 
working in the forest and cutting down trees and milling lumber and, and things like that. Um, what I didn't know is that Daniel Perry Sampson was the last man hanged in Halifax. Um, yeah, so, and recently, like, doubts about his conviction have become public. Um, and I'm reading from, from an article here. Uh, on Thursday, March 7th, 1935, an unemployed laborer named Daniel Perry Sampson walked up the stairs on the gallows constructed behind a Halifax courthouse. They're talking about the courthouse on Spring Garden Road. Mm-hmm. Making him the last person ever hanged in the city. Um, he was charged with he was arrested and charged with two counts of murder. It was five months after the body of two white boys, brothers ten year old Edwin and twelve year old Bramwell Heffernan, who are both buried in the cemetery as well, um, were found along the train tracks in the Chain Lake area. Like, so they were picking berries and they didn't come home. And their parents went looking for them and they found them dead. Um, it was. Uh, It was one of those stories, we talked about Johnny Power, how like the death of young people really grips a community. Mm-hmm. And um, people wanted some kind of justice. They were walking along a, tra- a path, picking blueberries, and it was never clear if they were hit by a train or if something else had happened to them. Um, he had two trials with all white jurors. To be a juror at the time, you had to... Um, live in Halifax, like Halifax proper, right? And you had to own property. So the odds of um, there being any black people on the jury in the first place uh, were next to nothing, right? And on top of that, they even asked in the jury selection, if because this is 1935, they asked in the jury selection, do you hold prejudice against black people? And people said yes, and were still allowed to be on the jury. Um, there, there's a lawyer in Toronto, uh, David Steves, who's, he's done a lot of, uh, work and research on this. And he said, what I was really focusing on were the significant concerns about how African Nova Scotians were treated in courts, regardless of their guilt or innocence. So whether you think that Daniel Perry Sampson killed those two kids or not, um, he certainly didn't get a fair trial with an all white jury, some of whom were admittedly prejudiced against black people. Um, he was uh, described by people at the time as being um, slow, okay. you know, um, and his family sees it differently. They think he was shell-shocked from the things he saw and experienced in the war, that he was just a quiet guy and that with the prejudices of the day and him being a quiet guy who didn't say much, people drew their own conclusions. Um, but he was buried in an unmarked grave in the historically segregated section of Camp Hill Cemetery because people were segregated even after death. So we're standing in what's marked as CS on a lot of the maps and stands for colored section. And there are other members of the number two construction battalion with names like Tolliver and other names that you're like familiar with from the black communities in Halifax. So Daniel Perry Sampson's grave went unmarked for decades um, until the last post fund, which is one of those organizations I talked about that makes sure that no soldier's grave goes unmarked, um, made him this stone and had it put in place, um, you know, regardless of what happened after his service. Whether you believe he's innocent or guilty, um, they don't believe that any soldier's, gra- soldier's grave should go unmarked. So now we have a place that we can come have this conversation about um, race and class and justice 
in Nova Scotia and and remember that it wasn't that long ago that we did things this way and you know um, uh, there's a lot that points to this being um, an unfair trial and that Daniel Perry Sampson was just a scapegoat he was just spotted in the area that's all they had and then uh, at, at the second trial he signed a confession but he signed it with an X because he couldn't read or write and it, it was a written confession so what did Daniel Perry Sampson know about what he made his mark on um, did he get did he ever have a chance of getting a fair trial did the community just want to heal somehow and have someone to blame um, regardless of whether he did it or not these are like the big conversations that are taking place in the world right now right and we can have that conversation around a stone in Camp Hill Cemetery in downtown Halifax um, but it only happens if these places are marked and maintained so we're gonna, I'm going to start wrapping it up sure yeah. for, for, for people who are interested in this and want to follow you where do people find your stuff uh, I, I started this on Facebook but it really lives on Twitter now okay. and so it's just at dead in Halifax and um, if you look on the profile you can find my personal Twitter if you want to know my opinions about all sorts of stuff but uh, I'm on dead in Halifax and uh, trying to get trying to get it off of Twitter now somehow too doing interviews and things with people like you and uh, also looking at you know putting together a book down the road yeah I think that like the more the more I can do to put you in the shoes of somebody who lived in the same place as you and walked the same streets as you in a different time the better a job I'm just doing as a storyteller regardless of the medium I want to thank you for joining Craig Ferguson and I for this eye-opening walk amongst the dead in Halifax. I hope this episode helped change the way you view your city's burial grounds. And perhaps it'll even inspire you to get to know some of the skeletons there. If you want to follow along with our guest, Craig Ferguson, I've added links to Dead in Halifax in the episode notes. And with that, we'll end this episode of Nighttime But first, a massive thank you to Craig Ferguson for giving me a glimpse into his work as Dead in Halifax. Craig, you're doing something very unique and very special. I look forward to uh, reading the amazing book or watching the documentary someone's going to write or film about what you're doing. And then, of course, there's a huge thanks to all listeners of Nighttime. Without your interest and your support of the show, Nighttime would as well be buried in the ground somewhere. But that battle to keep nighttime above ground is still raging on, and I need as many of you as possible to have my back. If you want to help keep the show stumbling on, please subscribe to the premium feed. Not only will it make the show possible, it'll also give you more of each topic than you're going to find here in the free feed. For example, after this episode airs, I'm going to release roughly one additional hour of audio from my walk with Craig, as due to time constraints, a lot of what we did had to be removed. You can subscribe to the premium feed at patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. Now, since I brought up that premium feed, let me thank the newest subscribers. Janet, Greg, Steve, and Heather, thank you for your generous support. And for anyone else who wants to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by simply sharing the episodes on social media. 
And if anyone out there has any story ideas or wants to give feedback on the show, you can reach me at nighttimepodcast.com slash contact. And you can also find me on social media. I use Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Now until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and don't be afraid about being eaten in a graveyard. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.